Hi, I'm Conor Byrne and this is That's What I Call Marketing, the podcast where you will hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique stories. Today I'm joined by the truly brilliant Peter Field. Peter is known as one of the two godfathers of effectiveness along with Les Binet, and that comes down to the work that they have done over the past 10 years plus to push for more effective marketing through evidence from the IPA database. Peter Les authored the influential long and short of it, balancing short and long-term marketing strategies. And Peter joins me today to, to mark the 10th anniversary of that publication. We talked about what led to writing the book, the context of when it was written, some misconceptions and frustrations, and also some of the things that are holding firm 10 years on. This is a wonderful episode with someone who has truly reshaped marketing for the better. Enjoy. Peter, thanks a million for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. Great to see you. Lovely to be here, Connor. Um, I got to start, in, in case anybody uh, doesn't know who is Peter Field, can you briefly tell me who is Peter Field? Uh, I probably need to just go back a bit to answer that, because um, uh, to know me, you kind of need to know that uh, I have a, a science degree, a degree in engineering, so there is a science side to me. But I realized that wasn't going to give me the kind of career I wanted. So um, when I graduated, I went into advertising, as you would. Obvious segue after an engineering degree. Horrified my parents. But what I was looking for was something where I could bring the discipline of, of uh, kind of science and learning, if you like, to a much more creative arena. And the, the, the job that attracted me was planning, account planner uh, in a leading agency for planning at the time. Uh, so it was the perfect role. You know, you got to do research and learning and try and put a bit of science, but into a, um, a, a discipline that was undeniably primarily a creative one. Yeah. And I think that is the real challenge here. And I think this is the most important challenge that I think we increasingly face in the world of marketing is being able to draw on the science to the extent to which it can help us. But to know that if we really want to uh, hit the high spots, if we really want to be as effective as we need to be in the modern world, you've absolutely got to add some creativity, some creative magic, some inspiration to that. Rule books cannot take you to where you need to be. They can get you partway there. They can make sure you don't make dumb mistakes. But always you have to um, allow free play uh, and some some space for you know for for creative leaps um, because they work in unpredictable ways. So that's what really brought me into it. And you know I spent um, about fifteen sixteen years as a, as a planner, kind of learning that lesson very slowly. I'm a slow learner, um, but then um, after two redundancies in in advertising, I thought this is you know I've clearly kind of reached my sell by date. Um, so I started my own business. Um, and for the last almost 30 years now, I've been a, a consultant and advisor um, initially to very short briefly to the advertising. But I soon realized that actually what I really wanted to do was to work with marketers. So for most of the last 30 years, I've really been advising marketers and, and appearing on platforms, written a number of books. Most famous books are with Les Binet, but loads of others as well um, about effectiveness. And everything I do 
is based on analysis of effectiveness databases, whether they're in the UK or Canada or Australia or, or you know, global databases. But you know, I like to uh, I like to uh, work from an evidence-based kind of right. approach because that's that's where I think the real interesting action comes from. It gives me a chance to steal other people's brilliance. That's, <laughs> that's the best thing about it. So hopefully, hopefully that that's kind of me. Um, that's the best bits of me. That's I don't know what the worst bits are. Well, look, one of the, you know today we'd love to talk about the the tenth anniversary of the long and short of it, which is you know an incredibly well known publication, as you said that you you wrote along with with Les. Um, I'd love to maybe paint the picture of ten years ago because you know marketing landscape is different now. What was it like then? What, what was marketing challenged with, I guess? Well, the, I mean, the the real challenge that we were addressing in, in the long and the short of it um, uh, was what I call the fog of performance marketing. I mean, we, we had, in the, the first book that we wrote together, uh, Marketing the Year of Accountability, which was about five years earlier than that, um, we had kind of spotted and made passing mention of the fact that the long and the short-term effects of advertising can be quite different but we really didn't have enough data to dig deeper than that at the time and start to you know follow that through and to examine uh, the conflict that we had already begun to realize might might be there so you know fast forward to 2013 when we was when we were when we published the long and the short of it and it was abundantly clear to us that uh, the world of marketing was going down a, a really rather dangerous track, that it was becoming more and more short term, more and more focused on just those uh, nudge nudges to get people over the purchase line, bottom of funnel marketing effectively, um, and that brands were beginning, and they were only beginning to, at that stage, walk away from brand marketing. So the long and the short of it was, uh, hence the name, a very, very deliberate attempt to say, look, there are two effectiveness worlds out here. There's the long and there's the short. Each are, are valid and important in their own ways but they pull you in totally different ways, different directions in terms of strategy, in terms of media, uh, in just about every way it is possible to think about. So if you're not aware of this uh, tension between the two, if you're not aware of the fact that they are different, you can make some really, really big mistakes. And we were beginning to see that then. Uh, we were beginning to get worried about um, a, a growing trend to short-termism. But of course, it had only really begun then. Everyone was still absolutely hooked on the Kool-Aid of performance marketing. People uh, people in yeah. big tech companies were saying, look, the brand is, brand is dead. You know, we don't need brand building anymore. It's expensive. It's inefficient. It's, it's so last millennium. You know, we just want to focus on, on you know, using data to serve these last minute messages to people because, you know, that is just awesomely effective. And of course, there is a huge, huge misconception in all of that, which, you know, I'm sure we'll yeah. come on to talk about. So it was a big, big mistake being made. We sensed it. We didn't begin to know how bad it was really in 2013. It subsequently got a whole lot worse, um, it, you know, and 
the long and the short of it wasn't wasn't a hit from day one. Um, it, it took certainly five years really to get any momentum going because I think people didn't really want to hear the message. Those who criticised it said, you know, this is kind of old focus right. thinking. Les and Peter, you know, they're old enough to be my granddad. They can't possibly know what's what's going on anymore. Um, so, uh, but I'm happy to say that I think really over the last, it started before COVID, but COVID I think was a help in a wake up call sense, because of course, the moment you hit recessionary fears, everybody goes short, but also around COVID, there were some, uh, just before and during COVID, there were some very high profile admissions and discoveries by big high profile brands like Airbnb and Adidas, that there were real uh, downsides to going too short and not building your brand. Um, so I think probably about four years ago, suddenly uh, the theme of long and short started to get some real traction, particularly in the US as well, where we yeah. failed to make any inroads. So it's kind of just built and built. And, um, you know, if you'd asked me five years ago, was it globally famous? I certainly couldn't have said yes, but I think now just about, just about. I think it is quite well read and well known now. Um, yeah, but uh, God, a bit of a bit of a long haul, hasn't it been? <laughs> no, no, because I think it's important to to remind ourselves of that context. Because you know, actually, interestingly, there's there's possibly people listening to this today who, you know, their marketing career may just be ten years, and so they're not, you know, aware of the context of what was going on before and how the. I guess proliferation of you know digital channels was taking over. I mean, you know, you you'll remember this as well, where agencies were, you know, you were either a digital agency or you were, you know, an above the line creative agency, and you know the pitches were, you know, well, no, you can't go for that pitch because you're a digital agency. Like, like it was a very mm. broken up industry, and you know there was a lot a lot happening. And look, not to say there wasn't good work in some of those spaces and, and good ideas but um i think it's just really important for people to to get the the context yeah well i mean les and i have always tried to be quite clear that when we talk about long and short we're not we're not we're not imposing a digital divide here there's yeah. no reason why um you know established traditional media channels have to be good at long um, and why is why new digital channels have to be cast as short term. It just happens that to date, anyway, the new digital channels with the data um, data utilization that they open up have been particularly good at driving short term effects. And because of that, the models that particularly the the, the platform owners have advanced. I mean, Facebook has been talking for you know for more than a decade really yeah. about its 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 model, its best practice model, which is all about the short. So they've in a sense shot themselves in in the long foot, as it were, if I can torture a few analogies here. <laughs> um, uh, you know, because they they were so good at helping to drive short-term effects that their whole thinking, the whole way they encourage people to use, the whole monetization of their platforms was all geared around that and made them inevitably, because if you've read the long and the short, you will know that if you focus on just the one, you undermine the other. Inevitably, the, those platforms have become not as good as they could and should have been at building brands. So the digital divide has been in, in part the self-inflicted uh, kind of issue it doesn't have to be and it shouldn't be and it can't be going forwards but um that's just the way it's turned out yeah and we're starting to see some of those platforms and you know looking to find ways to measure the impact of brand you know over 
over time. And I, I guess this, what's interesting with this is when you think about it, it's, you know, it's 10 years since the long and short of it. And, you know, it's it in itself has probably taken the time it's required because there's more data now available to kind of prove some of the, the things that you were looking at. At the time you used the IPA um, effectiveness database as your kind of your core source of, of information. What drew you to that as the, the source of, of data? Well, um, I mean, it, I helped set it up uh, 30 years ago. I mean, it was uh, when, when we were setting it up, and this, this was many, many years ago, I mean, more than 30 years ago, um, I did a round of interviews with the great and the good, um, you know, academics, practitioners, you know, people like Simon Broadbent, for instance. Um, and the desire was to have a body of evidence that rose above individual case studies, which everyone could shoot down. Because if you said, oh, look what Apple did, everyone says, yeah, but we're not like Apple. You know, you can't. So what we wanted was to coalesce the learning into a body where you had re respectable sample sizes where you could start to say, look, there is some robust quantitative evidence that there are, you know, kind of certain observations we can make about effectiveness. That was the desire. That was about 30 years ago we started to set it up, but it takes a long time to collect the data. So I was, you know, very closely involved in that, right. as was Les. Um, uh, so we, we designed it from the bottom up to do this. It wasn't, in a sense, a question of being drawn to it. We wanted to have an evidence-based point of view. Um, we created the evidence base, the two of us, over, over a period of about a decade. And we were finally able to start mining it, really, um, which we did for uh, Marketing Year of Accountability uh, almost 20 years ago now. So um, it, it, you know, these things do take a bit of a time. Um, so it was designed to be used in this way. It was great. Um, uh, uh, but since then, I've moved on and I've, you know, I've worked with the Australian equivalent and the Canadian equivalent. and I've worked with, uh, you know, WARC and global databases. Yeah. So they are all fascinating in their different ways. They often lead us in very, very similar directions in terms of findings, which is reassuring. But they are all, of course, databases of effectiveness. They all tend to be um, databases drawn from campaigns that were effective to some degree or another. And, and that, of course, has given the critics of this kind of analysis um, a, a nice way in because they can say, oh, well, this is all just, these are outliers, outliers, special cases. I was going to ask you about intensely. that. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to yeah, ask you I mean, it, it's, it's a kind of really dumb thing to say, isn't it, on a lot of levels, really. Um, I can kind of understand why academics might do this, because, of course, academics have been taught. And this is one of the big limitations, I should say, of a science approach and marketing science is that inevitably it leads you to ignore and, in fact, be very concerned about outliers because, you know, outliers yeah. don't don't kind of generalize you know you so we can't you know the thinking is any learning you might seek to extract from outliers is dangerous uh, and they should be ignored now anyone who has spent any practical time in marketing will realize what a dumb kind of observation that is because it's the outliers that teach us to move forward if we don't study the outliers we can't be exceptional 
So I'm totally with the marketing scientist in the sense that there are some basic rules of marketing that we need to get right, because if we don't, we will make some big mistakes. And a lot of big mistakes have, of course, been made in the past by people who have ignored those rules of marketing. But the point about rule books, the point about the science bit of marketing is that the rule book is open to anyone and everyone. And increasingly it is used if you work at certainly the blue chip marketing level, all of these big companies, whether it's Mars or Procter & Gamble or Unilever, are all very, very aware of the kind of dumb mistakes that you can make. So they're not making them. Right. So it becomes a level playing field again. How do you as a marketer move beyond the average or what I would call the mediocre? Because you can be, you know, you, you can you, you can get by with being mediocre in marketing to some degree. But most businesses, and this is particularly, of course, the case with the number twos, threes, fours, the challenger brands in categories, you cannot afford to be mediocre. The brand leader might be able to afford to be mediocre. But the challengers have got to do better than that. So they've got to be exceptional. And if you're all playing by the same rule book, you're all doing the right things, you're all communicating the same category entry points, you're all making sure you max out your reach and all those other bits that marketing science teaches we have to do. Where is the competitive advantage? How are you going to create one? You're not. And we know from work that Nielsen did many years ago um, in packaged goods, we know that on average, typically a challenger brand has something like a three and a half to one disadvantage versus brand leaders. That is to say that, you know, every euro um, above yeah. equilibrium that a brand leader puts into its uh, communication, its advertising, um, it will get about three and a half times as the, the gain as a, a challenger brand. Right. Now, these are pretty heavy stacked odds. We've always known that big brands, brand leaders have, yeah. a, have an advantage in markets, but that, that puts some numbers to this. And I think it's just a simple and terribly, terribly obvious observation that if you are that number two, three, four, perhaps five brand in the marketplace, and all you're doing is emulating the same behavior as the brand leader with the same rule book, how the hell are you going to win out with odds like that? So you're not. So you've got to learn from the uh, the exceptions, the outliers. That's one of the reasons I admire the work of Adam Morgan so much, because he realized this long before most yeah. people did. He's 20 years ago or so, he wrote um, Eating the Big Fish, um, which is really about particularly how challengers need yeah. to learn uh, to beat these odds. Um, and that you learn from case studies of success, not from studying normalized, you know, science, normalized behaviors. Um, only by doing that can you overturn odds of three and a half to one against. Because we know, for instance, that creativity can give you a 10 to one advantage. Um, if you pursue, uh, you know, related approaches, the fame strategy, for instance, that gives you something like a five to one advantage. These are the tools of leveling the playing field when you're a smaller brand. So you, you've got to do it. So, you know, this is my pushback to anyone who says, forget the outliers, forget case studies of success like the IPA or the FEs because they can't teach the average brand anything. I say the average brand desperately needs to learn this because the average band is screwed, frankly. Um, you know, <laughs> if they don't learn from this, it's a very, very expensive place to be 
to be average if you are not the brand leader. And it's it's not great even if you are the brand leader. Yeah. You open yourself up to a challenge, uh, frankly. So I think everyone's trying to be better than that. So you know, I admire, for instance, hugely Mars as a company. Right. Because if you look across Mars portfolio brands, they do the science bit. They're very, very, um, you know, into all of that. But they absolutely understand the need for some creative magic. Procter and Gamble, exactly the same. Yeah. Procter and Gamble, I think, know when and how to turn up the creative firepower when they need to, and they've got some great case studies. Of course, you know, you can't always guarantee to do it. That's the whole nature of creativity. Uh, that's why it doesn't generalize. That's why anyone who studies yeah. vast databases of the average band will probably not get the same strong signals about the power of creativity because it cannot generalize by definition you cannot have a category full of highly creative brands there can only be one or two in that category who are doing something completely original because the original soon becomes the normal so you know that's the nature of it great great strategic thinking cannot generalize it's it's always going to be um you know different and exceptional i think so and when you talk about um, creativity, so yeah, it's kind of like the science is your, you, you need to know the creativity then is is probably where you're going to excel. But I know from other things I've read and, and listened to, to with you is that one of the, one of the things that might frustrate you about, you know, 10 years in is the misconception that you're just saying it has to be traditional advertising is the way to do that creativity. Am I right in, in saying that? Um, well, there's been a certain amount of that criticism. I think Les and I have been fairly clear. I mean, we've always tried to include in anything we write and work some some good examples of digital creativity, um, and they, they are they are there and increasingly they're there. Um, so I certainly don't think that it is all about traditional channels. It's just that um, we have misused digital channels so much. Um, even when we have got very creative with digital, it's tended to be very much um, following a short-term kind of agenda instead of trying to be, um, you know, trying to build brands, use creativity, because that's really what creativity is good at. It's a brand-building yeah. tool. It's about creating enduring um, and motivating memory structures um, that last way beyond the last few. I mean, that's the value of it. If you don't have creativity, if you have very unmemorable marketing, you know, you've just got to keep, pumping it out there you know this that's where the always on model came from because your advertising was so goddamn dull mm -hmm. and boring that unless you kept pumping <laughs> it at people it, it you know it it couldn't work through the um you know through, across multiple multiple purchases so um but you know it's 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 not just about traditional media um but it remains the case that i think probably traditional media has made better use of it. A lot of the great creative case studies, um, creative effectiveness case studies, still have got um, strong elements um, of traditional media. But let's be clear, I mean, almost no campaigns these days are are exclusively either established or on digital media. Almost always they use both. And it's, so it's increasingly a debate about how you use both. Yeah. So I'm a very, very big fan of those limited number of, of, of companies and I've often referred to Geico, for instance, the yeah. American uh, insurance company as being a, a good example of a company that's said, look, we've got to find a way of building our brand using you know, digital online video. Um, and um, so I'm big fans of that. And I think you know, they've done some interesting, good stuff. 
But um, we know the challenge because academics like uh, Karen Nelson Field in, in Australia, uh, yes. she was an academic, she's now got a very, very successful company that's all about attention, attention economy. Um, we, we know from her work that the reason why it has proved so difficult to build brands on um, digital platforms is simply attention spans. You know, attention, the, the you know, you've, you've got to get a certain level of attention for a limit for a period of time and seconds. her threshold is two and a half seconds yeah. she, you know she says only after two and a half seconds of attention do you begin to build memory structures that is to say do you begin to build your brand um, and of course you know many digital platforms haven't been able to provide that she yeah. said 85 percent of she, she tested 130,000 ads, just average ads, some social, some not social, but all digital ads. Um, and only something like 15% of those actually achieved that threshold. And most of those who did achieve it only just achieved it. So you can kind of see the challenge. Um, but you know, Les and I have never said that that has to be the way. It's, it's the way it's turned out just simply because of the inadequacies of of the way the platforms have worked and they've monetized their you know their their their, um, their their product and the thinking that's gone on around it and frankly i think if more there'd be more thinking uh, that um, comes from traditional media like posters for instance i mean if you to make a successful poster work yeah. it has to work in a matter of seconds you know, it has to be eye-catching in the right way seductive in the right way. it has to be able to land a message with a relatively fleeting glance and to reward people who actually want to linger and come back to it so you know the whole point about posters is great posters have to be outliers they can't rely on yeah. know, half a second of drive-by noticing <laughs> um, they have to make you want to avert your gaze and come back and do more you know, and when you think of the some of the great uh, campaigns, mostly sadly in the past that used outdoors in that way, they were talking points. You know, um, uh, absolutely got yeah. people looking and talking about them. Uh, we don't do enough of that these days, but that's the kind of thinking that you think you need to start applying uh, to make digital platforms work better. Um, and it could be done. It could be done. Yeah, I, and I, I think just think harking back to agency days where you know you'd out of home was being designed, and it was being looked at on you know a screen or maybe a printout, but it was being looked at completely out of context of that. You know, I used to want someone to run past to the poster and go, right, tell me what you saw after like the the one or two seconds, because and I think that's also a thing with probably digital assets that we we create is is we look at them in on a deck or in a presentation and we're going to, you know, on a, on a big screen or, you know, whatever size screen, you go, yeah, no, that looks great. But it's the context. Why do, I don't know why we don't do enough of that. Why, why do you think we don't do enough of that kind of contextual viewing of advertising to help us inform decisions? I know there's testing platforms that can help. But... Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's exactly the problem. Uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've recently done some work for um, the news, news works in the UK who are the, the, trade body that represents uh, news uh, brands, what we would have called once newspapers, but are now increasingly digital platforms in the UK. And, you know, the only way you can explain the continuing, in fact, growing strength of news brands as advertising platforms is the context issue. You know, the, it is a trusted context and it's particularly trust. You know, mm -hmm. we, we've known for years that the context in which you see advertising influences your response to it. 
And that's always been a strength, particularly of of kind of news, the news context. But that's that, of course, has massively accelerated in recent years since, um, you know, what I will call the fake news era, since we started to yeah. realise, um, you know, and it's kind of Trump, Brexit, all of that. It happened about um, six, seven years ago, I suppose, um, or started to, and we and people started to realise that um, just because they read it online doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> Whoa, wake up, guys. Um, so I think that realisation has become much broad. And that means that where you get a medium where there is um, a, a greater belief in the trustworthiness of the content around it, that that rubs off on the advertising. So context is vitally important. And I think that's another thing that's undermined um, advertising effectiveness in many of the digital platforms. Because if you're surrounded by fake news, toxic news, you know, all sorts of dodgy players, um, uh, you, you, it inevitably alters the uh, sense in which as a recipient of a piece of advertising, you kind of are prepared to take it on board and not shut it out. You know, if you're, if your mental guard yeah. is up because yeah. you're in a, in an environment where everything is dubious, then that's going to apply to advertising. So context, really important. We need to do a whole lot more of it, not measuring it, but it's damn difficult. How do you do it? I mean, if I had an answer to that, um, I'd happily share it with you, but I don't. I mean, I think it's it's perhaps a role for AI, <laughs> the right kind of AI. You know, that for once would be us using AI to, to good advantage um, rather than I'm sure all sorts of bad advantages it's going to be put to in the years to come. But that would be a good purpose for it if you could train um, AI to in some way make an objective assessment of the context in which advertising appears, then that would be a really useful kind of metric. And um, it would be a great way of monetizing, you know, of, of, of um, kind of charging for the ads. It's not just about how many eyeballs do we get. Yeah. It's not just about what Karen Nelson Field is quite rightly fighting for, which is what kind of attention level did it gather, which is also very important. That, of course, she can measure. But the third ingredient would be, but what was the context value? Was it supportive of the advertising message or was it destructive of the advertising message? And if we could measure that in some way, I think it would be another great um, metric to our to our arsenal. And it would drive, you know, it would drive the quality of advertising environments upwards, hopefully, and uh, try and, and incentivize the filtering out of, you know, kind of bad fake news and toxic content and all the rest of it. Yeah. And, you know, I guess to not hark on about TV, but like there is an advantage of, of TV that you can, you know, you, you can buy around context. I think to, um, Hovus go on lad. And when that was done, you know, they bought the 100 and was it 102 seconds? I may get the numbers wrong. 122 120, seconds. I think yeah. it was, it was, it was, yeah, no, it was a, a mega they, ad. They yeah. bought, like they worked with ITV at the time and they, but they bought it around Coronation Street because it was the most viewed, you know, and it was all, and that would play well to the heritage of the brand as well, I imagine. So like that is a very, probably strong example of, of that context. Now you can't always get it. I know that with, with TV, but it, it does help um, having having the context. Um, yeah, yeah. No, well, just, just not to let that point drop for a moment, but we should move on, you're right. But, um, uh, you know, I think in the old days, when I first started in, in, in advertising, first of all, media and creative hadn't been separated. So um, the media guys, 
and they were very much guys in those days, could could have a conversation with the account team or the creative team um, and think about ways in which media choices could enhance the creative yeah. route. And so those kinds of initiatives happen much more readily when you get that kind of cross fertilization. So the divorcing of media thinking from creative thinking has been a big nail in the coffin of that kind of inspired, inspired thinking. But of course, there's another big thing as well, which is, has killed that kind of really productive line of thinking, which is, of course, programmatic. And the more we move yeah. down that way, uh, where we're just buying on, you know, kind of price and eyeballs, you know, no value is placed on the fact that this ad for, say, a new tech launch is going to be placed in an environment of white top technology, which of course will enhance its its message. You know that there is no value placed on it. It's simply a question of well, we're we going to get the right eyeballs, you know, for the right money. Yeah. Um, it's you know it's 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 a much dumber way of buying media than than the old fashioned way was actually when it was done well. Yeah, and I've seen things like you know smart bidding and performance max. You know, drive. And this is actually a really interesting point to think about metrics, but drive results at a better um, cost, you know, whatever whatever that was in the context I was looking at it. In. But, but it makes me think about the way we're measuring things. And as I, you know, look back over your work and, you know, was, was reading on it more, I was like, is that kind of fundamentally part of the problem? Are we measuring things in the right way? Or are we kind of going, well, this is our measure. We want to get cost per this you know, at, at this and with these many people and, and then like goals drive behavior, right? So people go a hundred miles an hour to get that thing and the quality isn't, isn't being captured. No, you're absolutely right. We did, again, it was one of the things we warned about in the long and the short of it. And we particularly focused on the uh, challenge between efficiency and effectiveness. And of course, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the absolute defining metric that we started to warn about um, uh, that, poses this threat is ROI you know and of course we have a marketing world that doesn't just measure ROI and it's perfectly sensible metric to measure I'm not for a moment saying we shouldn't measure it but it's when it starts to become a target it starts to become the thing we chase then ROI becomes lethally dangerous and I'm not hyping this it is lethally dangerous it kills it kills brands because ROI teaches you to go short to do to go for low-hanging fruit you know to simply um, uh, chase what I would call mediocre results with minute budgets that's the way to max out ROI um, whereas, of course, effectiveness is very different. Effectiveness is about maximizing outcomes, particularly the profit outcome. And what we showed and argued in the long and the short of it was that if you pursue ROI as an objective, you tend to weaken profit. And a lot of people can't get their head around that at all. You really have to think about it. Um, but, you know, people were warning um, marketing about this, you know, long, long before um, uh, we ever wrote that book. I mean, uh, one of the advisors to the setting up of the effect, IP Effectives Data Bank was a brilliant academic called Tim Ambler, okay. um, now retired, um, but happy to say still very much alive and well. Um, he, uh, he warned us 30 years ago not to chase ROI because precisely because as a ratio, you know, you have two ways to max ROI. It's a ratio of what you get back to what you put in. 
Um, and the easiest way to maximize that ratio is to put less in. And if you do that in the yeah. right way by going short, that ratio starts to take off. Um, but actually, the smart, the important way is to ensure that you're always keeping an eye to what you get back out, the, you know, the, the level of profit you generate, as opposed to simply the ratio of profit generated to the costs incurred in doing it. Um, and he warned us then 30 years ago, and we should have done what he did him because we've spent the last 30 years grinding uh, brands into the ground, driving them into the ground by pursuing ROI, which is an efficiency metric yeah. at the cost of an effectiveness metric. And it's just to, to look smart with the accountants, I think. It's it's really dumb. Really I was going to ask you about that because I think that is a fundamental challenge that a lot of marketers face, and I, I'm guessing you've met a ton of CFOs and CEOs over the the years, but particularly in the last you know ten years with with the publication, the book. Um, how are you having that conversation with them? Well, I have. I mean, you know, a lot of people, I think, see if they kind of get a bit of a bad rap, don't they? And I understand that. I've always found that when I've yeah. had the opportunity to get in front of the C-suite of companies, whether it's, you know, CFOs, CEOs or whatever, I've always found CFOs and CEOs, of course, are mostly people who were once CFOs. So um, kind of um, mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about the same animals in many ways. Um they're perfectly open. Um, they're intelligent people. They're perfectly open to an evidence-based argument. And I've always found that if you if you can put an evidence-based argument that alerts them to these dangers and gives them a sensible, credible way forward, that at least you can create the opportunity to try it out. I mean, obviously, you've got to deliver at the end of the day as a marketer, but um, but at least you can create that. I've I've not come across any CFOs actually that just stick their fingers in their ear and say, I'm not listening. I'm not listening. This is all marketing airy fairy nonsense, yeah. you know, because I think if you've got an evidence-based um, way of proceeding, then they're reasonable, intelligent people, they will listen to you. And I think that has been marketing's weakness in the past because it hasn't been evidence-based. It's, it's very much been, you know, just trust me, trust me. Um, you've got to marry the two. And, you know, we're kind of coming full circle here because this, of course, has been one of the values of marketing science in that it does generate an evidence base to support some of the really important tenets of growth driving, like the building of mental availability. And, of course, that is a very important one because mental availability is essentially another way for saying we've got to build the brand, build the brand in the right ways at yeah. least. Building a brand requires budget. We know that brand building is related to share of voice or particularly extra share of voice. So it has all sorts of implications for investment levels as well as strategy and media. So it's a useful proven construct to add to the evidence base when you're trying to put a, you know, an evidence-based argument to a CFO that you need to invest in the brand. So you know, it, it's, very, it's very useful on that level. It's just you know, taking it to the yeah. next level of saying yes but we need our advertising to work harder than our competitors if we're going to win this battle and i think that's where the marketing science sometimes leaves us rather short yeah you, you mentioned extra sh uh, share of voice and i do want to ask you about that because that was a, a theme that came out of out of the out of the book can you just explain that to somebody who may not have heard that before yeah sure and i, I would just say that a lot of people suggest that les and i invented the extra share of voice and we absolutely did not i've heard les say that, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, no, John Philip Jones, I think, is the man who probably deserves the credit. But there were lots of work was being done on this by Unilever and, and other researchers long before that. But John Philip Jones was probably the guy who formalized it into, you know, um, academic grade uh, papers and research. Uh, so he, and he did that in the 1990s, long before we put pen to paper. So we absolutely do not claim credit for that. Um, we simply uh, observed that it worked very strongly in the data we were looking at, that at the time, and I'll come back to the update on this in a minute, but at the time, the relationship between ESOV, and ESOV is simply the difference between your share of voice, your share of category expenditure across you know, all advertising platforms, and your share of market, you know, measured in IDD financial terms. So if you have a 10, 10 share of market and your share of voice is 11, then your extra share of voice is one percentage point, you know, difference between 11 and 10. It's as, it's as simple as that. And what we found and what John Philip Jones and other researchers found over many years was that it was that metric, the difference between share of voice and share of market that either drove growth or resulted in loss of loss of growth, loss of market share if, if share of voice was short of share of market. John Philip Jones observed that it wasn't entirely a straight line relationship. It's an unfair world, as we've already been discussing. It's yes. a curve that flattens off. So big brands can actually get away with lower share of voice and share of market and still drive growth. That's one of the ways in which they get this three and a half multiplier yeah. over over lesser brands. Um, but um, uh, it's kind of more, it's, you know, it, it, it's obviously much more complex than that. There are context issues as well. So we simply observed that exactly that occurred in the IPA database that we worked on. And at its peak, and I will say that its peak coincided pretty much with the advent of the, the very beginnings of the performance marketing revolution for, um, for reasons I will come to. So if we're talking about 2008, around about then when performance marketing was really beginning, just beginning to get going, at that point, the relationship in the data I look at between ESOV and market share growth was unbelievably strong. You absolutely could predict market share growth based on it. It was a very, very strong, highly correlated uh, metric. Since then, what's very interesting is that correlation has, has absolutely eroded away. Now, you know, what I'm at pains to point out is that doesn't mean to say that the relationship between investment in brand building and market share growth has weakened. Right. It just means two things. One is that thanks to the walled gardens, of the digital platforms, we can't measure share of voice as reliable as we can. So we can't really know it. So inevitably, mm -hmm. the metric has become more, more noisy, more, more, more unreliable. So that's undermined the relationship. But also, more and more of our spend, our share of voice, uh, if you like, is not about building mental availability, it's not about brand building, it's about short term sales activation. Right. You know, and Les and I advocate the 60-40 rule, 60 brand, 40 short term. Many brands around the world gone way beyond that. You're lucky, frankly, if you've even got 40-60 going on. I mean, often it's 20-80, maybe 30-70. Yeah. So you've got vast amounts of that supposed share of voice that isn't doing anything to build the brand at all and therefore is not driving long-term market share. All it is doing is driving short-term market share. So because of that, that 
absolutely cast iron relationship between ESOV and market share growth has massively weakened over time. So I think to correct that, we need to do two things. Firstly, we need to know much more accurately exactly what our share of category expenditure is. But secondly, we need a share of brand voice, not a share of total voice, because that we need them both. We need share of brand voice, share of activation voice. We need those as separate metrics. Right. And when we've got that, we'll work out how to combine those two to create a new effective share of voice measure um, that will teach us, uh, you know, teach us how to measure the metric and, and able to guide our investment and predict growth. But at the moment, we don't have that. Um, so uh, there's work to be done. I was going to like, there's we... never yeah. not worked. Yeah. <laughs> will we get it? I mean, because part of the challenge is you know, wall, as you say, wall gardens. Yes. Well, we've got to break them down. We've absolutely got to break them down. And we, you know, markets have got to keep, keep driving at this. We, we've got to have reliable metrics. And, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in uh, Karen Nelson Fields work. And, you know, um, in the, I think you have the basis in attention at least to yeah. develop a parallel metric um, you know, at the moment, she she advocates attention weighted share of voice, um, which I think is 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 a very useful advance. But you know, really, what actually we're driving at, what we really want to get ultimately, is a measure of share of attention. Um, you know, that we generate because that actually is what we need to know. Um, and when we have that metric, I think we'll be able to make lots of much smarter decisions about about um, the media we buy, but also about the level of investment. So, you know, if I have a very, very creative and therefore very, very effective piece of advertising, my share of attention is going to be way ahead of my yeah. actual share of spend. Um, and I might, I might use that information either to drive astonishing growth or simply to drive very profitable growth by so you know without the metric we, we we can't be certain and we can't we can't get it right so i'm very eager to you know push that kind of particular issue forward so i think it's a really important metric to build yeah and 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 valuable to everybody right in the sense of not just the advertiser but the the platforms right because ultimately you know i think they're you know, trying to evolve i was listening to um the debate on you know it was a debate about double duty and in australia there was an example from news Corp. they had done a moe a shandon piece of creative that seemed to do you know both brand both performance a really interesting just discussion um you know on that but but again you there you're looking at a platform kind of i think coming to the table and saying we need to do more we need to actually evolve and not just kind of sit behind you know units <laughs> like, and, yes. and, you know yeah and that is good and you know i think this issue of double duty um i'm still nervous about um i accept that maybe if you've got a very smart platform that can deliver in but kind of both the requirements of the long and the short it can deliver high attention uh, um, brand building capabilities on the one hand but it can also deliver um, data-driven, highly targeted um, pla um, platform on the other end. And I think someone like um, 
a news organization, a big news organization like that may well be able to do that. But you've still got a fundamental challenge to the ads that you might run on it, which is that when you're talking about brand building, you know, you've got different strategies, different targeting, different media requirements to when you're talking about sales activation. They are very different worlds, you know, very broad targeting, probably longer form emotional messages that build brands on the one hand. On the other side, you've got very tightly targeted probably quite message related functional kinds of nudge messages that yes. just make you yeah. do the buy now on the other hand so they they call for very very different placements so it's actually much more difficult than people make out to, to do effective double duty advertising and i think usually what you end up with is something that does n- neither very well and i experimented with this when i was in agencies many years ago you know i did work on a lot of bits of business that did direct response as well as brand and we always wanted to try and do it and every time i tried to do more creative brand focused advertising to drive short-term responses it failed and every time we put too much responsy stuff into the brand building it weakened the brand and i kind of in a clunky way learned there and then keep the two separate do each really well yeah find a way of integrating them of course because you want to evoke the brand when you're doing activation and when you're doing brand building you want to try and steer and set people up to the activation where you can so integrate sensibly and intelligently of course but just recognize that they're totally different tasks you know it's very difficult to do them together it comes yeah to me it comes back to like the objectives like what are you trying to achieve because if it's sales tomorrow you need to do a different set of things and if it's you know future demand as james herman calls it or just long-term brand building you need to do different things and and you've talked about you know emotional rational fame i want to come to a question that paul dervin who you know well uh put to me uh to ask you he said it feels like more ads in a media plan are shorter formats than 10 years ago it's hard to create emotional-led advertising in six to ten seconds you probably need to do it in three any thoughts or recommendations on this and you mentioned geico was a good example already yeah no absolutely well i mean that's that you know paul Durbin is one of the smartest marketers i know and he's absolutely put put the put his finger on it here with that one um it is of course really difficult i don't think it's impossible I, you know i like what have done for instance i think you know they they've shown that you can to some degree in short format do engaging uh, um, brand building work um, you've just got to think very cleverly about it and you know if we accept which i entirely do the karen nelson field finding that you you've got to you've got to work to trying to get more than two and a half seconds of attention. So that means you've got to provide some kind of reward or lure to the viewer. You've got to make them want to carry on watching because it's too easy to scroll past. And if we're simply relying on unscrollability as our compunction for viewing, that's not gonna work. I mean, people have eyes. They are able to avert their gaze or close their eyes or just mentally ignore you. Uh, sorry, digital guys, that is possible, you know. Um, so we've, you know, you, you've got to get back to enticing people to want to watch your advertising. That's of course what Geico have done well. But you've got to recognise, and I think that's why the poster format. And you know, I had an interesting conversation some years ago with a with a very bright guy from Mars about precisely this. That they, they, their thinking was poster when it comes to, to digital brand advertising. And I think that is absolutely the right way to think. With a poster, if you've got a good poster, 
um, you know, you might get two, three seconds of viewing. If you're lucky, you might get a bit more than that if it's a particularly good one. If you're very lucky, you might get people talking about your ad yeah. so that actually you even dry. And that's where you have to try and go for. You've, you've got to try and create that kind of advertising. And again, this just brings me back to the difference between activation advertising, which could be just communicating a single you know, thing that will make you click, but it's not going to build a brand. And and it's a very ultimately inefficient way of doing it. So you've just got to you've got to think in a separate way. And you know, and Paul's question is absolutely right in saying you've got to find a way of making it emotive in some way. Because if it's not emotive, it's not going to be memorable or compelling, or certainly it's not going to become a talking point because people don't by and large talk about facts. They talk about cool <laughs> stuff. You know, hey, whoa, have you seen that amazing ad with, you know, I don't know, the, the dog doing whatever. You know, yeah. Those are the things that people people talk about. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the advertising message kind of comes through if it's done well on the back of the cool creative. So, you know, again, let's be clear, coming back to marketing science, you know, there are those who would have us believe that the formula for success in advertising is simply going down a checklist of category entry points and just tick them all off. Um, and that's great if you're a brand the size of McDonald's. You know, it's very de-risked. Yeah. You know, you can go down that. You've got tons of money. You can say, yeah, we're for high days and holidays. You know, we're for granny as well as junior. We're here for breakfast, lunch and supper. You know, we... All of those CEPs, we can tick them off because you know what? We've got billions. But most of the brands I work with, they don't have that kind of budget. They yes. read these marketing science edicts about CEPs and about universal reach of the entire target audience. And they say, look, I'd love to be able to do that. I, you know, I buy the value of doing that, but I haven't got the euros. I haven't got the dollars to do it. So you know, give me another way forward. And that's why, you know, I keep coming back to this model of emotive, famous advertising, because what we've always found with, and, and those are the kind of creative formats that Paul Durvin knows, knows so well and has been so good at, um, you know, working to develop off the back of yeah. the science, is when you develop these kind of iconic pieces of advertising that stand out in the categories, the category entry points just come to you automatically. It's, it ceases to be a checklist because you are the brand in the category that everyone's talking about. It is assumed you are good for all occasions. It is assumed you are good for all people. It is assumed you are going to be here, there and everywhere. You know, they just come with it. And there are lots of great examples of case studies in effectiveness databases, yeah. not just the UK one, of brands that done that. You know, the, you look at their advertising, and if you're lucky, there was one category entry point in there, if you're lucky. But they became so popular and so iconic within their category that they show you the data. They say, look, we our, our, our reputation across all sorts of things just leapt as a yeah. result of this. You get it without having to do it mechanically. So, um, you know, the, the, these are the important lessons we need to learn. And I think that is why it is worth uh, struggling to find ways of doing the digital piece um, uh, more more powerfully so that we can use the, you know, the, the, the reach of digital um, and the flexibility yeah. of digital in many ways to enhance our brand. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, good question from Paul. I would expect nothing less. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I was just thinking there was a, I saw an ad on, on Twitter for Storm Beer and it was a very simple, like like a gif almost, of a guy holding a can of this beer and just obviously a wind machine blowing his face as if it was a storm. And it was just, it was arresting and, you know, probably wasn't that expensive, but it looked good. I was like, that's, you know, that's good. So it's possible to do good. And one yeah. of the others, as you talked about the the cases, um, I think Specsavers is probably a wonderful example and they probably have tons of money, but like Vet is a brilliant, phenomenally good ad that's probably 10 years old and they've just been consistent. And so they then do the mix of the brand building and then the short-term activation for me anyway, exceptionally well. And I think their business has, has shown the results of that. No, absolutely. But also um, if you, if you talk to the team at Specsavers, as, as I have, you know, they have, there have been periods when they walked away from this and quite recently, right. and um, you know, uh, it, nothing's safe in this world. It just takes the next marketer to pitch up and suddenly decide that, you know, what well, all that brand building, it's, it's a bit expensive. And, you know, I can use data just to target people who, you know, are searching for an eye test, you know, why would I build the brand? And of course, you know, Specsavers have good reason more than many brands to learn the value. I mean, I often use them as an example of uh, a brilliant example of the um, profit value of yes. long-term brand building because it's a stellar achievement they've done. And I'm happy to say they are now getting back to um, you know, lovely brand building again, having had a, a little bit of a window from it. But I mean, some of their old ads, like like VET, for instance, was so powerful. It's a great wow. example of an ad that yeah. just worked for many, many years because, because we all loved it so much and remembered it so much. But again, it says something, you know, great creativity isn't just about entertaining, amusing, memorable stuff. It's about that, but anchored in something that the brand delivers. And of course, yes. the great thing about yeah. their campaign, VET in particular, is absolutely rooted in the idea of the importance of good vision um, and the the offering that the, the brand had on that level. So, you know, it is in many ways, I think the absolute paragon of virtue of great creativity it's the alignment of creativity to commercial purpose and of course that's where often creativity does go wrong um uh, but i think increasingly we're, we're kind of learning that message uh, but yeah it's brilliant it's brilliant and i've i've always loved it and um you know their most re yes. more recent advertising is getting back to form and i think um i think they'll they'll go from strength to strength um, so look, we're, we're, we're coming to time, but one of the things I did want to ask you is a lot of marketers are facing into difficult times um, whether it's recession or not, we'll, you know, who knows, but, um, but there's definitely, there's definitely challenges to marketing budgets, which probably is going to lead to, well, we're going to reduce brand spend. We're going to just focus on the short, the short term, although people may not call it that what advice or what would you give to a marketer um facing into that like how can they how can they address that with their with their leadership well the first the first thing is to uh, look at the evidence and all the evidence says that um you should not walk away from the long term from from brand building going short in a recession is dumb on two levels really first of all it means putting more money into probably a 
channel, which is going to become more expensive in recession, not less, um, to drive a lower volume of sales because in a recession, everything is, is, is likely to be, um, markets tend to contract. Not all, but many do. So it's done on that level. But secondly, the, the learning is that the big opportunity you have in recession, because typically brand building media tend to get cheaper, is a cheaper way of reinforcing your brand so that when the recovery comes, uh, you will come out uh, with all cylinders um, firing. And so the evidence says that the brands that continue to invest in brand building through recession come out of recession with massively greater strength than they went into it. And it is a unique um, and extremely low cost period in which to leapfrog your competition and build your brand and drive growth. So you walk away from a great opportunity. Uh, now, that's not to say there aren't balance issues between brand and activation that need thinking about during recession. Yeah. I'm not saying walk away from short term activation. Um, there will be a need to kind of keep the revenues coming and to, to parry anything your competitors will be doing. But the daft thing to do is to walk away from branding. And we know anyway that brand building turbocharges the short-term activation. So if you want to carry on trading during a recession strongly, you really need the brand to help your performance marketing do its job. But the main thing is to, to, to keep doing both. Um, we know that uh, because media often gets cheaper and because some of your competitors are going to be dumb enough to pull out of brand building, that you may well be able to maintain your share of voice or even build your share of voice um, with less money. So you may still be able to bank a few euros and keep, keep the CFO happy, um, but still maintain this critical metric, which you've absolutely got to keep your eye on through recession, which is what is your share of voice? And particularly, obviously, your brand share of voice, if you can measure that. Because if you're not maintaining that, um, you're going to come out of recession weaker than you went in. Yeah. And you'll be coming out with diminished uh, margins anyway. So it's a dangerous place to be. So, you know, uh, let's not make that mistake. People make it every recession. They get their fingers burnt. The ones that all the success case stories in recession are from brands that stuck with the advertising, stuck with the brand building. So let's you know do that, do that. Here, here, and there is evidence. So you know, encourage people to to seek it out. You've written about it. Others have as well. So I think I think you're right. The evidence is the key because it's there, and we need to use yes. it. Yes. Plenty of people have written about it. If you, if, you, if you have a look through LinkedIn, you'll find references to lots of other papers, academic papers as well as non-academic papers. Ehrenberg Bass have done work on the danger of brands going dark, you know, what kind of market yeah. share you can expect to lose. And, and other researchers have done work on that as well. Um, there's a great research paper that was published after the global financial crisis. I think it was about 2009 or 10 by two American academics, TELUS and TELUS, definitely get hold of that. The trouble was that they published their paper when the recovery was on. So everyone said, oh, boring, <laughs> boring. Why would I be interested in recession? It's a brilliant yes. paper. Is that the Harvard um, Business Review back... one? Um, maybe yes, it was excerpted um, in it. Yes, uh, there's, there's quite a few papers. Yeah. It's really worth doing the trawl like, yeah. um, and getting hold of them uh, because there's been a lot of work done on it. But it all points you in the same direction, which is don't disinvest in your brand. It's really dangerous. It's superficially seductive. You may well be able to boost your ROI numbers in recession, but I hope if I've done just one thing in this podcast is to alert you to the dangers 
of pursuing ROI as a metric because it will kill you. It absolutely will kill you. Measure it, be aware of it, but don't target it because it leads you to a very slippery slope of um, short-termism, low-hanging fruit, easy, quick wins, and not building your brand for the long term. And recession is the classic environment where people do that. Yeah, I think you said to to us at, at one point it, it, it's killing killing brands and killing businesses so um yeah that's that's a high risk strategy uh, for people Definitely. to pursue so uh, peter what a great point to leave it at thank you so much for your time today i really appreciate it great to to speak to you on the 10th anniversary of the long and short but last question did you think at the time it would have the impact and and, and legacy that that it's had um, no, I mean, I think we had hoped it would it would, it would have its impact rather quicker than it did. I mean, <laughs> um, it's a long time coming to get to where it got more than five years before it really started getting widely read. And, you know, most of 10 years before it um, absolutely became well known. Uh, we had no idea it would be as influential as it has been. We certainly hoped it would be influential, but um, it succeeded our, our wildest dreams um, and we're relieved to some degree that that's the case. But uh, if only it had happened sooner, it might have saved a few dollars out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I encourage people who maybe haven't read it to, to read it and, and some of the other work that, that you've done as well. well Thank thanks you very so much, much Peter. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. Bye now. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode and getting to spend an hour in the company of one of the true greats in marketing. I'm lucky that I had spent time with Peterfield before and what is wonderful is the Peterfield that you saw or heard today is the one I'd met before and it feels like the really authentic version. He's passionate about what he does and as you can tell, has some strong views like ROI. But he is also open to new evidence, but there has to be evidence. It was a real pleasure interviewing Peterfield today and I hope you enjoyed it. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening or watching. That's what I call marketing. If you did enjoy it, please do share and add comments with your feedback. You can get in touch and find all previous episodes on that's what I call marketing.com. Follow us on Instagram for short videos on that's what I call marketing. And on Twitter, where we talk about all sorts of different marketing stuff, that's underscore marketing. And now you can watch our episodes back on YouTube. And you guessed it, you'll find those by searching That's What I Call Marketing. So from me, Connor Byrne, until the next episode, take care.